Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Our Father, it is truly a rich and a glorious, a satisfying, a delightful thing to be gathered in your name, to come together as your people, to be encouraged, to be able to lift our hearts and our minds in song, to engage in your holy word that has revealed your good intention for your creation, all bound up in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, to be sharers in that work, to be beneficiaries of your goodness and your grace, how that ought to eclipse all of the delights of this life, how it ought to eclipse all of the things that burden us, that discourage us, that come against us. To know that we have been raised up in Christ Jesus, that we now inhabit the heavenly realm. Even as we, we heard from Hebrews 12, we have come to Mount Zion to the new Jerusalem, to myriads of the angelic hosts, to just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant, the renewal, the covenant renewal that Israel sought and longed for. Father, I pray that you would capture our hearts and our minds with these things, And that like the Apostle Paul, we would never get over this glorious gospel, the glory that is yours in the face of Christ, the glory that even now is being formed in us, that we see as in a mirror, not a declining glory, but an ascending glory, a glory that is working unto the fullness of that glory, according to your purpose, to see us fully conformed to the glorious one, to share in all that he is and to be made heirs of all that he has inherited. What a glorious hope. May it constrain our minds, may it constrain our lives, may it fill our days and direct our path. Meet us in this time, encourage us in your word, build us up in this most holy faith. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, after a little bit of a hiatus, we return to Hebrews and are actually beginning chapter 12 today. Chapter 12, even though there's a chapter break, it doesn't begin 
something new, but rather continues the same line of thought. If you look in chapter 12, you see the writer begins with this word, therefore. And it's actually an emphatic particle. It it carries an inference, but it's an emphatic term in Greek that has this sort of idea, for this very reason, or in view of these things. It has an emphatic quality to us, and it looks back to what we've seen in chapter 11. Again, the writer wasn't simply rehearsing uh, kind of a, 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 a cataloging of the faithful in Israel in chapter 11, but he was reminding his Israelite readers of the heritage of faith that was theirs. He had a a very practical, a very uh, um, serious sort of, of intent in laying out all of these who had gone before them as the faithful in Israel. And again, following the pattern that he has throughout the epistle of bringing instruction and then drawing an exhortation or an inference from that instruction. That's very much the way the writer has instructed throughout the the epistle, and that's what he's doing here. So when we see this word, therefore, we know that he's pulling together what he's been discussing and saying, here's what you're to take from this. Here's what you're to understand. Here's what you are to do with this. And essentially what the writer is saying is that the hardship, the suffering that his readers have endured, and again, we've seen this in in our long consideration of Hebrews, that this is a pastoral epistle in the sense that the writer isn't just writing an abstracted uh, kind of remote sort of of high doctrine of, of the Christ, of the Messiah, but he is laying in front of his readers... Again, a new and a fresh consideration of the person and the work of Jesus for the sake of their faith, for the sake of their perseverance in faith. As Jewish believers, they have been suffering greatly. We saw that in chapter 10. Loss of property, loss of of ethnic identity, imprisonment, in some cases perhaps even death all because they have embraced this man, Jesus of Nazareth, as the Messiah. And there are a lot of pressures being brought to bear against them that would try to uh, uh, pull them back, pull them away from their faith, and even, in a sense, for their own sake, relieve the pressure that is being brought to bear against them. Even the claim that you have abandoned the God of Israel by embracing this false Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And if you will renounce him, then you will return to Moses and the prophets. You will return to the God of Israel. You will re-embrace your own Israelite identity and heritage. And the writer is showing them how the whole history leading up to their time the history of their nation, the history of their forefathers, was, in fact, the history of the suffering of faith. That all those who went before them who were faithful themselves also endured hardship and suffering because of their faith. 
Now, they weren't suffering because of faith in the person of Jesus the Messiah. Jesus hadn't been born. The person of the Messiah had not been revealed, but their faith was in the same God. Their faith was in the God of Israel who had promised that one day he would arise. One day he would do this mighty work of deliverance and cleansing and renewal, all associated with this messianic figure, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And so their forefathers, while not having the same content of faith, they didn't believe in the person of Jesus of Nazareth as Israel's Messiah, yet they had the same essential sort of faith. Faith in Israel's God, faith in the God who had promised, faith in the God of whom they were convinced is faithful. And that faith had cost them just as dearly. You see that in the way Chapter 11 ends. He says, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured. They didn't accept their release. Rather than being delivered in a temporal, in a physical sense, they waited in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mocking, scourgings, yes, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, tempted, put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. People of whom the world was not worthy, yet wandering in deserts, mountains, caves, holes in the ground. And all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They all died without living to see in their own experience fulfilled what God had pledged to them. They died in confident faith because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They died, all of these Israelite forefathers, they died waiting and hoping in the very things that had now come to pass in the life of these Hebrew believers. God had now done in their own generation what their forefathers had waited in. And that's really kind of the framework for this transition of, to exhortation in chapter 12. Therefore... In view of that, having such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising, setting aside, disregarding its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's all the farther that I would like to go with this today, the first two verses, but obviously the writer is going to be fleshing out an entire argument. So he calls his readers to draw encouragement from those who went before them. Not simply recognize that there were faithful individuals in the past. They were faithful, you be faithful but to see the connection even between them and draw encouragement from those who had gone before. 
And throughout the epistle, he's reminded his readers of all of these essential considerations in which they were to take encouragement and find strength in their own resolve to walk faithfully. He reminded them of the promises of the God who is faithful. The promises of faithfulness that the men and women who preceded them walked out in their own lives, even in the context of their own suffering. The faithfulness that had become sure, yes and amen, in the Messiah, in Jesus himself. And now his own glorification, his mediation, their share in him. The one who is raised, the one who is enthroned, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, that was the very inheritance that was laid out for them. And in all of that, they were to be greatly encouraged. And yet, through all of that, he also was confronting them with their own solemn obligation to show themselves faithful. Those who had gone before were an encouragement to them, but they themselves also needed to be faithful. If those who, here's the logic of his argument, if those who went before you remain steadfast, immovable in their faithfulness, believing the God who has promised, and they saw the promises from afar and they died without seeing those promises fulfilled, how much more should you, Hebrew believers, and by implication, all who name the name of Christ, how much more should you be steadfast? How much more should you be immovable? How much more should you be resolute in faith, having seen God's faithfulness fulfilled in fulfilled promise in Jesus? All of what the fathers died hoping in you have seen come to pass. How much more ought you to be faithful? And in calling them to this life of faithfulness, he uses a very powerful image. And it's not uh, unique to him. Paul uses the same sort of imagery in his epistles. But it's this image of an athlete, perhaps more narrowly a runner, who, is, uh, who gives himself fully to the ordeal of a, of, of a contest of strength, a contest of, of exertion, if you will, running a race. He puts this obligation of faithfulness in terms of competing in an ordeal of strength and endurance and the need to approach that faithfully. Obviously, that sort of imagery carries all kinds of connotations. It carries the connotation of, of training, of discipline, of an arduousness, uh, you know, strenuousness, of perseverance, of completion, finishing a race, of victory even. And all of those are kind of bound up in the writer's exhortation here, but he really focuses on two main kind of uh, components or or dimensions of that. The mindset that they're to have in running this race and the discipline that they attach to that endeavor. 
the mindset, and then the actual discipline of life and effort. So as I've looked at this and thought about it and, and how to kind of, in a sense, boil things down, there's a lot that could be said here, but I want to treat it in terms of the three dimensions that the writer sets out. In this thing of running this race or, or, or following through with this ordeal of faith, he points them to the past, he points them to the present, and he points them to the future. In this issue of discipline, in this issue of mindset, he directs them to the past, to the present, and to the future. And that's how I'd like to treat this today. So with respect to the past, as we've seen, he points them back to those who have gone before. Specifically, that they would find encouragement in those who have gone before. That they would find, in a sense, in those who have walked the path before them, strength in their own resolve to be faithful. He says, having such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us run our race. He points them back to the past. The witnesses he's talking about are the faithful in Israel's history that he's discussed in chapter 11. Those who have gone before, all the way back to Abel, who have lived their lives faithfully, trusting the God who has promised. And again, those forefathers faced the challenges, the ordeal, the contest of living faithfully, and they met that ordeal and they triumphed through the challenges that came to them as those who nonetheless died in hope of the day when God would arise and do what he promised. So how much more ought these Hebrews, and us as well by implication, how much more ought they persevere in faith in their challenges? For they had seen the hope their forefathers held on to. They had seen that hope realized in the person and the work of Jesus the Messiah. And they had seen his triumph in death, resurrection, and enthronement. And they were sharers in that triumph. How much more ought they to persevere in faith? So the witnesses then, this cloud of witnesses, are those who went before. But another thing I want to point out about this, because the kind of the, the imagery of an athletic contest, many people hold this view, and I'm not saying it's, it's entirely wrong. There may be a kind of double entendre in this, but... People tend to view this idea of the cloud of witnesses as being like spectators in the stands watching these Hebrews run their race, watching us run our race. And the idea really more primarily of these individuals as witnesses is not as observers but as examples. Not observers but examples. They weren't witnesses in the sense that they were uh, you know, up in heaven looking down on later generations as they ran their own race and cheering them on. Go, go, go. That's not the point that he's making. He, they are witnesses in the sense that they are faithful men and women who bore witness, 
who testified of their own immovable confidence in their God and his promises by their own steadfastness and perseverance. So they're not up there cheering. In other words, these readers are not to be encouraged because there are these spirits up in heaven, the spirits of the fathers who are cheering you on. The encouragement that they were to draw was by considering these who had gone before who had been faithful. They were an example to be imitated. They were those who had borne witness to what a faithful human life looks like. They were examples to be imitated. Others have gone before and they have run their race. Draw encouragement from them. Follow their example. So he tells them to look back to the past and to draw encouragement from the past in that way. But then he also focuses them on the present. And specifically the obligation of disciplined endurance in the present. Looking to their forefathers was important and it would encourage them that others had run the race that they were called to run. It wasn't impossible. They were, in a sense, standing on the shoulders of men and women who had gone before. But that wasn't enough. They needed to complete their own contest of faith. Those individuals had each been appointed an ordeal of faith. That's what we saw in chapter 11. Each by faith, by faith, by faith. And each one of their lives were a little bit different. Each one of their challenges were a little bit different. Each one of their struggles was different. And yet they had met that challenge in faith. And he says, you too, you need to run your own race. You need to complete your own contest of faith. The one that God has uniquely appointed for you. You run with endurance. We need to run with endurance the race that God has set before us. And implied in that is the fact that it's not exactly the same. The race is the same in general terms, but the specifics of the way it fleshes itself out is unique. You have to run your own race that God has appointed for you. And doing that, running that race, requires proper preparation and proper execution. It requires discipline. Proper preparation and proper execution. In other words, it requires that we address every impediment to running and to winning. Every impediment to running our race. Literally, what he says is, having laid aside, let us run. There is a preparation to running this race. And he says it's laying aside certain things. Essentially, laying aside everything that would distract or undermine or preclude our running our race. He treats that in terms of two things that he speaks of in very general terms. Removing encumbrances and addressing things that entangle. Again, drawing from this imagery of, of an athlete competing, you know, uh, if, you want, if you will, a runner running, 
He starts with this thing of laying aside everything that encumbers. Have you ever seen uh, a, a sprinter go to the line for the 100-meter uh, dash wearing uh, a big parka and uh, hiking boots and, and big bulky clothing? No. They want to be as light, as non-wind resistant, as agile as they possibly can be. They throw off all weight. They, don't, they may train with ankle weights, but they don't run with ankle weights. They don't compete with ankle weights. They throw off everything that encumbers. And this is the imagery that he's dealing with here with this race of faith. Persevering in faith, taking seriously our race, and running to win, as Paul says. He says, everybody comes up to the line. In, in a race, all the runners compete, but only one wins the prize. Run in such a way as to win the prize. Running this race of faith requires setting aside everything that weighs us down. Doesn't mean everything that's evil, everything that's wicked, everything that's unclean, everything that's sinful. Everything that might encumber us and so in whatever way impede our progress. Everything that tends towards our weakness, towards our injury, towards our slowness. It can be devotion to our families. It can be, it can be all sorts of things that in themselves are not bad. Things that are good in their own way. But they become things that weigh us down. Paul was very clear about the fact that in running his race, he set aside everything that would in any way distract him or weigh him down or make his heart less tender. Anything that would provide any sort of impediment or jeopardy to his race. Didn't matter what it was. And note that the runner, the writer of Hebrews doesn't give us a list of things to put off. He says, lay aside every encumbrance. And what encumbers you may not encumber me. The things that are particularly in your life now, or based on who you are, your circumstances, your personality, the things that encumber you may not be the things that encumber me. Here's this discipline of owning our own race. You know, often we want someone to live the Christian life for us and haven't been a pastor a long time. People want to come and say, here's my problem, how do I fix it? And too often even pastoral counsel is, here's a verse, go read this verse, go do this, go do that. We want someone to fix our lives like we fix our cars and that's not how it works. We each have a race to run, and we need to encourage one another. We need to run together, but your race is your race. I can't live the Christian life for you. You can't live it for me. 
There is no formula. And so each one's encumbrances are unique. And that means that we as individuals have to prayerfully, carefully, mindfully seek to discern those things that weigh us down and set them aside. And if I come to you and I say, here's the list of encumbrances for me, and you say, okay, I'll I'll throw those things aside too, that may not apply to you. At least not maybe in the same way. So he deals with this in a non-specific way. Every encumbrance. We have the responsibility to determine what those things are. And then he adds to that, he says, the sin that so easily entangles. Same sort of imagery of an athlete competing in a case, in a contest. If you saw, again, a sprinter go up to the starting line and his laces are long and untied, you'd point at him and you'd say, that guy, he's either clueless or he's foolish. Who's going to run with shoelaces untied? Even the imagery that Peter uses, you know, he says, gird your minds for action. It's gird up the loins of your mind. This girding up the loins was drawing up the garment. Tying it up, the long garment, whether for battle or for competing in a race or whatever. But you didn't want this long flowing garment when you were trying to be moving around in battle or whatever. Gird up the loins. It's the same idea. The things that would entangle us. And once again, the writer is nonspecific. He just says, the sin that entangles And I think it's perfectly appropriate for him to speak in general terms in that way because contrary to what a lot of us tend to think, the Greek and the Hebrew idea of sin is not dealing with a catalog of behaviors or conducts that are inappropriate or evil or bad. The idea of sin is it deals with the fundamental nature, the fundamental nature of human failure. Specifically, it carries the idea of deviating from what is right or true or appropriate. This concept of sin has to do with truth versus falseness not good versus bad behavior or conduct in the first instance. And so as a human phenomenon, often you hear this idea, you know, the Greek term hamartia, well, that means to miss the mark. Well, in kind of a general sense, that's, that's fine and good. But to miss the mark is, again, this idea of deviation, being off track. And because sin is a human phenomenon, or to the extent that it's a human phenomenon, it concerns deviation from the truth of human existence as God intended it. It is deviation from what it is to live a truly human life. Deviation from our identity and function as God's image and likeness. And in that sense, it transcends bad behavior or sinful conduct as we would think of it. Paul told Titus, to the pure, all things are pure. 
To the impure, nothing is pure because his mind and his conscience are defiled. See, Paul's getting at the fact that sin can't be defined in terms of conduct per se. It's about what's going on up here. And so what we tend to call sin, this catalog of things that we say that's wrong, that's bad, that's evil, what we call sin, the catalog of infractions or, or transgressions or whatever, those things are actually the manifest symptom of sin, not the substance of it. You see this even in the way in the garden at the beginning with the fall. The issue was a process of rethinking or deviation that was taking place in the mind of Eve. Did God really say? Here's what he's really trying to do. It's a deviation from the truth of our own identity and function as God's image and likeness. And that perspective helps us to understand, I think, what the writer's really getting at here. When he says, lay aside the sin that so easily entangles, we say, okay, well, what are those things? Give me the list of sins. And that's not what he's getting at. His concern is not with sinful actions per se, but an undisciplined mind that deviates from the truth. A way of thinking that is off track. A deviated mind. A mind that fails to to conform to the truth, in this case, as he writes to these Hebrew believers, and the things that are causing them to stumble, the things that are carrying them away, the things that are pressing against them. It's a battle up here. And this sin that so easily entangles, again, is a way of thinking that ultimately departs from the truth of their, and by implication, our identity, renewal, and ultimate destiny in Jesus himself. It's akin to the way that Paul would exhort uh, his readers, particularly, for instance, the Corinthians, when he'd say, don't you know who you are? Don't you know who you are? When he dealt with lawsuits, he didn't say, don't sue each other. He said, don't you know who you are? When he dealt with sexual immorality, he didn't say, don't do that. He said, don't you know who you are? And he wasn't approving those behaviors. He was saying that the fundamental issue is what's taking place up here. That's why he said to the Colossians, if you've been raised up with Christ, and if you are Christians, you have then you've died and your lives are hidden with Christ in God. Christ is your life. When he is manifest in his glory, you will be manifest in that same glory because the truth of him is the truth of you. His glory is your destiny. That's 2 Corinthians 3. We all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same likeness by the Lord who is the Spirit. Don't you know who you are? Isn't there someone among you with the mind of Christ who can resolve these things? Why do you go to unbelievers in their courts? Don't you know who you are? Why would you join Christ to a harlotrous relationship? 
You see, we say, does God see me when I do this? Does God hear me when I say this? We have this idea that he's out there in this place called heaven and he's remote and he, you know, he maybe has his phone up to his ear and he hears us or something or he's looking down on us. But Paul says, no, you are the dwelling of God in the spirit. What you do, what you say, what you think implicates God in the very sense that he is in you. I in you, you in him, right? The issue with sin is a perspective. It's a way of thinking. And with these readers, the issue is specifically their distracted and distorted thinking that was resulting from all the pressures being brought against them. Persecution, affliction, broken family relationships, things that were pressing against them. That's what tribulation, thlipsis, is all about. Things that press, 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 press. And when things press against us, our minds go off track. He's dealing with things that would work in their minds against their steadfastness in faith. If you will, the sin of disbelief. Not saying that they're unbelievers who are not saved, but the disbelief that is the compromising of our faith such that it produces unfaithfulness in some measure to some extent. In whatever sense, for whatever reason, to uh, to whatever extent, this is a compromise in our minds that affects our faithfulness on the ground. That's why and how this sin so easily entangles. It involves distraction. It involves deception. If a runner trips up, if a runner stumbles and falls in the middle of running his race, it's because of something that escaped his notice, right? Something that he didn't see, something that caught him off guard. Unless he's foolish and he runs with untied shoes or something. But all things being equal, if he trips up, it's because of something that he didn't see. Something that caught him off guard. Or something in his clothing or his outfit or whatever that shifted or came loose while he was running. Something unexpected. Something that has caught him. And my point then is that it's relatively easy for us as Christians to identify and deal with sinful behaviors. That's a relatively easy thing. We know how to identify the things that we call sin, sinful behaviors, sinful words, sinful attitudes, whatever. It's much more difficult to detect and to address faithfully the subtle motions of our minds and our hearts that work against our faith and our faithfulness. That's a much tougher battle. My mind, when I was thinking about this this week, immediately went to Psalm 91 and Satan's use of Psalm 91 in tempting Jesus. Jesus, who is tested at the point of his humanness as the true Israelite, as the son of Adam, 
Will he be, in truth, the faithful image son? And that's the point at which Satan tempts him. If you really are the son of God, throw yourself off the temple. Because right here it says, Psalm 91 is a, 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 a salute or an ode or a celebration of the faithful man. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord my God, my rock and my, my refuge, the God in whom I trust, right? Satan quotes from that psalm. It says right here, he'll give his angels charge concerning you. They'll bear you up in their hands lest you strike your foot against a stone. That's God's promise to his faithful children. If you are his faithful son, then claim that promise. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And my point in saying that is that Satan was tempting Jesus at the, one of the fundamental points of human deception, which is confusing faith with presumption. Confusing faith with presumption. What we call faith is very often presumption. God, I'm believing you for this. God, I'm believing you for that. God, you've promised this. God, you've said that. God, and we're believing him for what we perceive to be the best, the most suited, the appropriate outcome. See, that's a subtle shift in our thinking that ends up producing unfaithfulness, but we may not be aware of it. We think we're believing God. We think we're trusting God. You see the same thing as Paul talks to the Colossians, this confusing of pride and godliness. Paul says, if you have died to the principles that govern human life in this world, why is it if you still belong to it, do you continue to conform to its rules, the way it thinks? Do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. These things have the appearance of wisdom in their false humility, their self-imposed worship, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in really dealing with the problem of sensuality, life by the senses. They seem to be good. It's the confusing of pride and godliness. Very often our concern for living a godly life is nothing more than our pride that says, I'm better than the guy in the gutter who's got a needle hanging out of his arm. I'm better than the drunkard. I'm better than the adulterer. I'm going to live a godly life. It can take the form of confusing self-concern with godly sorrow. Paul talks about there is a sorrow that characterizes the world, but it leads to death. We could say, oh, you know, I'm just so torn up about my sin, my sin, my sin, my sin. And all it is is self-preoccupation and self-concern. It's not godly sorrow. You see, we can get twisted around this very easily. And these are the th- this is why this sin entangles. 
It's easy to deal with bad behaviors. It's not so easy to deal with the issue of the renewing of the mind. But we're transformed not by changing our behavior, but by the renewing of our minds. To the pure, all things are pure. To the impure, nothing is pure, because his mind and his conscience are defiled. Everything that comes to a defiled mind is defiled. The discipline in running our race well is a discipline of mind. And if we just drift through our days, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, I'm a Christian, I won't do this, I'm not getting drunk anymore, I'm not sleeping with my girlfriend, whatever it happens to be, and we're just kind of drifting through our days, then we're guilty of the very thing that, Paul, or that the author of Hebrews is warning about. This is a discipline, an intentionality, a purposefulness. Hearts and minds set on things above. Don't you know who you are? Don't you know who you are? That's what repentance is all about. A call to come back and think again, think again, think again. And this should be our ministry to one another. Helping one another to see what we don't see, our blind spots, the things. It's not about trying to change each other's behavior. It's about striving together to see each one grow up in all things into Christ who is the head. Christ-likeness that is in the renewing of the mind. And that brings us to the third part. So drawing from the past, the encouragement from those who've gone before, living with a discipline, a, a, a mindset, a mindfulness in the present, and then he says, ultimately, eyes set on the prize. If you will, the finish line. In a very real way, even if he can't see it, you know, a runner in a steeplechase or a cross-country race or whatever, he can't see the finish line, but that's what's in his mind. That's what he's running towards. And that same imagery is here, too. Running the race depends on setting certain things aside, but it also depends on holding tightly to something, which he says is fixing your eyes on Jesus. And it's interesting because this term really has two equally important connotations. It means to lock your gaze on something, having looked away from what you were previously fixated on. And the implication here is that our eyes aren't naturally fixed on Jesus. They're fixed on something else. And he doesn't say what that is because it can be different for each one of us. But whatever you are fixated on, whatever you are preoccupied with that, turn away from that and lock your gaze on Jesus himself. And the idea here is not just kind of preoccupation in some abstract sense, but remember again that these Hebrews are being pressed to stumble, to compromise, to in a sense uh, wander or, or soften or redefine their faith and their relationship with the Lord because of the things that they're suffering. And the point is this, when we're pressed... 
when we're pressed, whether it's in suffering, loss, financial difficulty, whatever it happens to be, when things press against us, our instinct is to start looking around for remedy. This is what God said to Israel. Stop looking anxiously about you. It's in that same wider context in Isaiah. I am he, the Holy One of Israel. Stop looking anxiously about you. Israel, whenever it came and, and, and it was you know, invaders threatening them or whatever came to them, they started looking for allegiances, you know, forming alliances, some sort of way to fix this and figure this out so that they could solve the problem. And God said, stop looking around you. I am he, the Holy One of Israel. I will deliver, I will save, I will preserve. When things press us, we become preoccupied with a remedy. Remember how I said we confuse faith with presumption? That's one way in which we do that. God, I'm suffering, I'm suffering, I need this, this is bad, this is broken, I'm sick, this, you know, fix this, fix this, fix that. We're looking for these kinds of remedies to solve the difficulty. Get me out from under this. Take this away. Fix this. And the writer is saying whatever it is that you're looking towards in the hope of finding relief from what's pressing you, you need to turn away from it and fix your gaze on Jesus, the one in whom you set your hope in the first place. Why are you hoping in relief? Why are you hoping in remedy? And it's not just Jesus in some sort of, you know, remote, abstract, subjective sort of way, but he, he speaks of him specifically as what? The author and perfecter of the faith. The author and perfecter of the faith. And his point is not, he's the author and perfecter of your own personal faith. Jesus is the author of my faith, and he's the one who's going to complete it. And I'm not saying that that's untrue in some sense. You know, Paul says, the one who began this work, and you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. But the author is here speaking of the faith. He uses the definite article, the faith. Not your own personal experience of faith, the faith. In other words, faith as the new mode of human relationship with God. Faith as defining true sonship. Faith as defining the way that human beings who are living into the truth of their created identity and function as image children, faith as the mode of relationship with God which Jesus inaugurated by his incarnation, by his death, and by his resurrection. This is the faith that is grounded in the fulfilled promise in Jesus. It's what Paul is talking about in Galatians. He says, before faith came... Before the faith came, we were kept in custody under Torah, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. 
So what is he saying? Nobody had faith before Jesus came? Well, clearly he's not saying that. Uh, If he is, then he's contradicting the writer of Hebrews because we've spent all of chapter 11 looking at the faith of these who preceded Christ. What is he saying? What is Paul getting at before the faith came? He's talking about faith as, again, defining the way in which human beings live in relationship with God, a relationship of trust, dependence, confidence, settledness, peace. And he's saying that way of living human life that God created us for has now come into its consummate reality with the coming of the Messiah himself. Jesus was preeminently the man of faith. And I'm not going to go too far down this path, but I think because of the way we've gotten so spun up in in associating faith with personal salvation, I'm saved by faith and not by works. Faith is what we do to get saved. It's easy for people to to not think of faith in relation to Jesus. He wasn't a sinner. He didn't need to get saved. He didn't have faith. We have faith. We have faith in him. That's how we get saved. But the scripture presents him as preeminently the man of faith. Because he lived a life of perfect devotion to his father. Even as he comes near to the time of his offering, he says, now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. What shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour. It's to this hour that I came. And when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. Now is the power of darkness. Now is the hour and the power of darkness, but he has nothing in me, but that you might know that I love the Father. You see, Jesus' whole life was a life of faith in the sense in which the writer of Hebrews is speaking. It wasn't that he believed in something to get saved. Faith as faithfulness. Jesus lived a human life of perfect intimacy, perfect conformity, perfect trust, Such that he could say again, to see me is to see the Father. When you see me, you see the Father. Because I'm living the life authentically, fully, truly of an image son. And the pinnacle or the, the apex of Jesus' faithfulness was his self giving at Calvary. But from the moment of the incarnation, from the moment of Jesus' birth, he was living a life of perfect faith and faithfulness regarding his father. That reached its climax in the cross. And so he inaugurated, he initiated the faith. He is the, to use the writer of Hebrews terminology, he is the author of the faith by his death and his resurrection. When Jesus is raised as the triumphal, uh, consummate human being, true man, seated at the right hand of the Father, in Jesus' resurrection, you see the triumph of the entire life of faith and faithfulness. And now through him, faith becomes the way in which human beings can actually live their life in relation to God as they are sharers in him. It's actually what Paul means in Galatians when he says, 
I have been crucified with Christ. In that sense, I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Well, gee, Paul, it looks like you're still alive. It looks like it's still you. And he says, no, the life that I'm living now in the flesh, in the body, in this life, in this world, he says, that life I live out of the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, my faith in the Messiah and my share in this life that is in him is grounded in his own faithfulness. That's the sense in which Jesus is the author and the completer of the faith. In a very real way, what the writer is calling these readers to, to live a life of steadfast persevering, enduring faith is calling them to simply live into the life of the Messiah who is the faithful one. In a very real way, our faith is living into his faithfulness. Our worship is participating in him as the worshiping one. All that we are, all that we do, all that we're becoming, all that we're destined for is our full share in all that Christ is. We are joint heirs with him in that sense. He says, you are to fix your gaze on the one in whom faith has its very substance, its very life. The one whose faith reached its climax at Calvary. If you want to see in a poignant, powerful way what the faith and faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah looks like, he says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, disregarding its disgrace and shame. He was able to set it aside, to disregard it in that sense because of his ability to be undistracted in his commitment, his faithfulness to his calling. What shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour? No. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus wasn't distracted by the cross, by its pain, by its shame, by its horror. He wasn't distracted. His faithfulness, his discipline, he understood and he believed the Father for what the Father had promised. Jesus had to trust the Father for the resurrection. He went into that grave trusting the Father for the resurrection to come. And he wasn't distracted by all that met him. It didn't deviate him. You see, this is the way in which the writer is is speaking to his readers, and this is far more powerful than simply say, you know, be careful about your bad behavior because it'll trip you up. And I'm not saying don't care about bad behavior, but this is far more significant than that, and this takes all of those things into its grasp. 
So yes, we draw encouragement from those who've gone before. That's right, that's good, that's proper. And yes, we must discipline ourselves to run our own race in our own generation, in our own time, the race God has appointed for us. But what will ultimately sustain us is fixing our gaze on the goal. And the goal is a person. The goal is Christ himself. He is our destiny. The goal, the ultimate end of our faith, isn't having a place in heaven versus a place in hell. The goal of our faith is not one day I will be sinless. The goal of our faith is not one day my body won't hurt anymore. One day I'll have a new body. The goal of our faith is our Christiformity that we would be fully, exhaustively, body and spirit sharers in the Messiah himself. All that he is, all that he has inherited, that our goal, our destiny, the thing that we fix our eyes on is our full conformity to Jesus the Messiah for the sake of our human vocation. Our full conformity and execution of our created identity and roll. See, too often we think, okay, I'm going to die, then I'm going to go to heaven. That's kind of this dark, mysterious place. What am I going to be doing? And, you know, we joke about the commercials with eating cream cheese and having wings, you know, and all of that. And it's kind of silliness. But, but it all reflects the fact that this idea of just going off in our spirit to this weird place called heaven strikes us as strange. It doesn't, what, what is that like? What's that going to be like? But that's not our ultimate destiny. Our ultimate destiny is that we will be fully, exhaustively human image bearers, image children as Christ is, such that we will be God's presence and God's mind and God's love and God's loving lordship over the works of his hands. Our destiny is very much a earthly one. And I'm not a Jehovah's Witness. Our destiny is not for our spirits to float around forever in a place called heaven. Paul says, even then, I don't long to be unclothed. I long to be clothed with my ultimate tent. I long to see God's purposes for the creation realized, a purpose that has me also at the center of it that I would be fully, exhaustively, that I would attain to all that God has ordained me for, which is my place and share in the Messiah, the one who is the fullness of uh, the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, I'm going to stop there, but I'd like for you, I was going to read this, but I'm not going to, but I'd like for you to go back, and I know I've, I've asked this before, Take some time in view of what I've talked about today and go and look at Paul's statements in Philippians chapter 3. If 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 is kind of the most concentrated presentation by Paul of the way he viewed his ministry as, as a minister of the new covenant, Philippians 3 is the most concentrated presentation of the way Paul viewed his life as a Christian and what he oriented himself to. And it's very much this thing of pressing on towards the goal of the prize, forgetting what is behind, 
all these things that I had confidence in, all these things that were a part of even the way I viewed my relationship with God, all of those things I count as manure, having come to understand now that this is about sharing in the Messiah himself being conformed to him, and therefore even experiencing his sufferings because of being him in the world. And understanding that ultimately what this will bring is the resurrection of the dead. I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he says, everyone who is mature should have that view of things. Yes, we run a race, but if it's just all about dealing with my sinful behavior, then I'm a navel gazer who's chasing my tail. It's about having my eyes fixed on the one who is the prize, and not in the prize in the sense that he is my destiny. He is the truth of what God's ordained for me. If we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. We are joint heirs with Christ, heirs of all that he's heir to. That's what keeps us going. That's what keeps us faithful. That's what keeps us persevering. If you think about it, even in terms of a road trip, what keeps you going is the destiny at the end, right? When you're young and you're going to visit your girlfriend across the country or whatever, it's a long and an arduous journey, and it may have you know, distractions and stops along the way, but what keeps you going is seeing that person at the end. And it's not just that we're going to see Jesus with some beatific vision. It's that we will find our own place in the, the all-encompassing purpose of God to sum up everything in his creation in him. We have a glorious destiny. We need to be faithful now, fixing our eyes on him, the author, the perfecter of the faith. Let's close in prayer. Father, I hope that these things ring true in the hearers who are present today. I hope that even if there are points of confusion or maybe just a lack of clarity, that nonetheless, by your spirit, these things ring true that it is indeed a most glorious destiny that you have appointed us for. It's not that we don't see any value in our spirits going to be with the Lord at the point of our death. Paul said to die and be with Christ is better by far. But he also recognized that that's itself a holding place, a time of longing, a time of groaning, a a time of waiting. Just as the creation groans, so we groan. And even in our spirits in the presence of the Lord, when our bodies go in the grave, we're still groaning, waiting for the fullness of the new creation, the renewal of the last day, to be clothed with that heavenly tent that is appointed for us, that we will finally at last be who you created us to be and fulfill our glorious vocation as image children bearing your likeness, bearing your fragrance, being your presence, your word, your truth, your heart, your will in your creation, fulfilling our 
calling as image children. I pray that this would motivate us and that this would strengthen us and steal our resolve. And may we be encouragers of one another in this way. May we be encouragers of one another in the way that Paul encouraged the saints. Don't you know who you are? Don't you understand the glory that you share in and the fullness to come? I pray, Father, that these things will transform us and that we will be ambassadors of them to one another and that this will be the good news, the gospel that we proclaim to the world, not just by our words, but by our joy, by our peace, by our steadfastness, by our settled hope that cannot be shaken as we await that great day. And it's in Jesus' name and for his sake that we ask. Amen.